you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. So many of us have seen this scene in a movie where a hero's about to go do something, and before he goes, there are a lot of people that go, wait, don't go. Don't you realize the danger that you're in? And that hero continues and still goes, knowing that there's a greater cause that they're fighting for. And what we see is the struggles that hero goes through and find at the end that they're victorious. The ultimate hero is Christ. If we remember the story in the Gospels, as he's traveling with his disciples, teaching them for a few years, he tells them that there's a cross awaiting him. There is death that's awaiting him. And his disciples, in their commitment, tell him, don't go, Lord. But if you do go, we'll join you. And what seems to be a defeat ends up being the greatest victory when Christ rises from the dead. You see, this morning we're going to be looking at another story along those same lines with Paul, who travels to Jerusalem, and his fellow believers want to tell him to not go. We're going to be looking at two specific things here, especially because they try to persuade him to stay away from the danger. There are two things we're going to be looking at. Number one, community, verses 1 through 7. And number two, commitment, verses 8 through 14. Number one, community, verses 1 through 7. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo. In finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptalmas, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. You see, Paul is making his way back to Jerusalem after meeting up with the Ephesian elders in Miletus. He sails to Kos, which is an island about 40 miles away from Miletus, traveling through roads which is actually a place that had a previous statue of Apollo, who's the, the god of the sun, light, poetry. They actually had quite a few different titles they've given him, who's worshipped by both the Romans and the Greeks under the same name. He's actually one of the few gods that's, that has the same name under the Roman uh, context and the Greek con- context. Artemis, for example, is a Greek name for Diana, which is the Roman name. Paul continues to Patera, another 60 miles from Rhodes. And here we see the connection with Luke traveling with him. Luke is including himself in these travels. They finally arrive in Tyre, and they stay with the disciples for a week. You see, when persecution scattered the church after Stephen's death, 
Some went and evangelized this particular area, and there were disciples that Paul found and spent time with. Remember, Paul is trying to deliver something to the poor in Jerusalem. He's taken some funds from churches that were hoping to help the poor that were in Jerusalem, and they had collected that and gave it to Paul. In a matter of week, though, a week, many things were accomplished here in this text. Paul's taking the time to spend a week with these brethren. He's, he's taking the time to make sure that they are given more encouragement from the Word of God. Just as God created the world in seven days, so many things can be accomplished in seven days. And this, this, this sweet time of fellowship that Paul had, he encouraged these, these disciples to continue in their faith, regardless of the hardships that they may face. In seven days, I believe, Paul formed friendships he never had before. In verse 4, it says, They told Paul, through the Spirit, not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, this is interesting. If you're reading this, you're going, wait a second. Why would they tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem? What's even more interesting is that it says, through the Spirit, not to go up to Jerusalem. So is Paul disobeying God here by going to Jerusalem? Well, we're going to talk about that here in a moment. How do we know that that's not the case? How do we know what is meant by the phrase, through the Spirit? See, this is where study of Scripture is very important. When something seems to be contradictory, we need to examine Scripture in light of Scripture. And we might need to cross-reference, double-check, see what that phrase may look like in other passages. So first, how do we know that Paul is not disobeying God? Well, our first reference to what God, Paul will do for the gospel itself is found in the explanation that God gives Ananias when Paul first comes to saving faith. When he's given his sight and restored, number one, he's promised that he would endure suffering for the sake of Christ. How do we know that? Well, turn back in Acts chapter 9. Same book that we're in right now. Turn back to Acts chapter 9, verses 15 through 16. Here's what it says. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So we know right off the bat that God has called Paul to suffering. Just as soon as Paul has stopped persecuting Christians and became a Christian himself, his lot, if you will, was to experience suffering. You see, the problem with a lot of Christians today is they assume that when they come to saving faith, it's going to be amazing things in life from here on out. It just isn't the case. In fact, God promises throughout Scripture that those that live godly will suffer persecution. It's to be expected, believer. The second thing that we see is the direction has already been previously set. The direction has already been previously set. In Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24, here's what we read. And this is Paul speaking. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, 
nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see, Paul had already determined that he was going to go to Jerusalem. He didn't know all the fine details, but he did know one thing, that tribulations and persecutions are awaiting him in every city. The experience is going to be relatively the same no matter where I go. So what is meant by the phrase, through the Spirit? We know that Paul had already been promised suffering and persecution. We know that he had already been set off to do that, called by God to go to Jerusalem. But what do we mean by the phrase, through the Spirit? It would help us to look at similar texts to determine the meaning of this one. First place that we see this, and I actually do not have the reference on here, I'm sorry, Sam. God works through different members. And this is, I believe, in Corinthians. I don't have exact reference here. But there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So we see from that text that God works differently through different members in the church. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, we see that the Spirit reveals the end result to many of us without the particulars beforehand. Galatians 5, verses 4 through 6, here's what it says. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You see, the Galatians were trying to earn their right standing before God by going back to the law. But hope itself is realized in the future when our bodies are redeemed and our righteousness is found in Christ. That is something they are assured by Paul is coming in the future, though they do not know all the details before they get there. In these two truths, we take into account that God works differently through different members of the local church. And second of all, the Spirit revealing the end result without the particulars beforehand is common. Because we know, right, at the end of the day, Jesus wins. If we've read this Bible, we know God wins at the end. We know that based on the book of Revelation. Yet before we get there, we know a lot of things are still going to happen. We don't have all the particulars regarding those things. What we're seeing here in that text back in Acts chapter 21 is that these disciples had insight into what was going to happen to Paul. And just as in the insight that the disciples may have had 
and seeing some of those things that were coming for Christ and trying to stop, if you will, Christ from doing so, here's what's going on here as well. These disciples cared so much for Paul that they didn't want to see him go through that because they knew what was coming. Because they had this foresight, they more than likely pleaded with Paul not to go, as we'll also see here in a few verses shortly. Practical application here when it comes to the will of God, the infamous struggle that all of us have. Ever since we were teenagers in youth groups, we've always had this conversation, how do I know the will of God? Right? It's, it's the famous phrase that so many ask. Church, we need to know what's been revealed in the Word of God to know the will of God. And those petty things that are debatable, let's say they're not so important because they're not clearly spelled out in Scripture, you need to make sure this is right first before you worry about the other things. We have it backwards many times. We want the mysterious, we want the unknown figured out, and we're not doing what's clearly already revealed. You see, if you're faced with choices that could go either way, and some of you will have a bias, you know, God is not pro-Toyota, he's not pro-Honda, right? Like, it, those are not choices that really, at the end of the day, matter when it comes to the context of Scripture. Maybe even the same job responsibility that you could find in a different, co in a different company. Those aren't to be determined by Scripture, right? Okay, do I work this job or that job? How do I know? Those aren't so clearly spelled out in the Word of God. You need to be in the Word of God, be faithful to the community of God, and God will work those things out. So many are looking for the mysterious when the revealed is right in front of them. You see, Paul ends up saying goodbye to these disciples and their families. Their wives and children join them by kneeling by the shore and praying. More than likely, praying for the gospel to continue to spread, praying for Paul's safety as he goes to Jerusalem, praying for strength and boldness, and for them to continue in their faithfulness as well. As a side note, it's important to see what's actually implied here, is that men were the leaders and their wives and children followed them. They brought them with them. Fathers, if you don't care for the fellowship of the saints, neither will your children. Your wife is to follow your lead. You're not to follow hers. God holds men responsible for their families. Paying someone at school to teach them of God does not negate your responsibility. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't send them to a Christian school. I want your children to have a good Christian education. But it begins at home. Sending them to a youth group does not negate your responsibility. The responsibility of discipling in the home starts with the fathers, period. Now, if you're a mother that says, but my children don't have a spiritual father at home, well, I want you to be encouraged by something, there is the local church that God has given you as an opportunity in that area. You see, Paul was a spiritual father of Timothy, 
Timothy apparently did not have a father who was present, spiritually speaking. Paul took that responsibility on and made it a point to disciple Timothy. So if you're saying, you know what, I don't have that, and you're, you're a single mother maybe watching online, God has called the local church to come alongside and encourage and help in that area. We're called to admonish fathers and their responsibility before God and also help those who do not have that. Just as Paul t- helped Timothy. We have men available in this church who would want nothing more than to help your child be discipled. Especially if the spiritual father is not available in the home. Church, godly leadership is underrated. We must most definitely need community as Paul did. But we also need commitment to what it is that God's called us to. Even when it's uncomfortable. Number two, commitment. Verses 8 through 14. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns his belt, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. You see, Paul continues and makes it to Caesarea and stays in the house of Philip the Evangelist who has four virgin daughters that prophesied. More than likely, they were set apart for a particular service for God. Now, a prophet named Agabus shows up from Judea, and he takes Paul's belt and binds his hands and feet and proclaims that the Jews will do so to the one who owns this belt and deliver him to the Gentiles. He's almost prophesying a similar experience that Jesus went through in his turning over by the Jews to the Romans. Paul legitimately lived out his faithful mission to Christ in a very similar manner. As soon as it's obvious to those that heard that this was about to happen to Paul, just as previously mentioned in those entire, they heard that this was happening, this was going to occur with Paul in Jerusalem, they begged him not to go. There's one thing that's very common in American Christianity is when a Christian wants to do something for the Lord that's bold, that seems outrageous, that seems dangerous, there are many that want them to play it safe. And I want to encourage parents today, as you're raising your children, don't play it safe. Don't assume that as long as I can protect my child, that's what God wants. 
When your child grows older and wants to walk with God and wants to serve God and God calls them potentially to a mission field that's very dangerous, you should not dissuade them if that is what God's called them to. There's one thing that's very common in America is that we build up heroes of success and diminish faithful gospel ministers that are putting themselves in life's dangers. Parents, God has never called us to be safe. In fact, what did he say? Tribulations will abound. I don't know why we're so shocked by what's been going on lately. It's almost like it's finally caught up to us in America that hard times are here. Church, people have gone through these most difficult times throughout history. And what we have now is nowhere near what some of our brothers and sisters have gone through and are still going through right now. I suggest we possibly stop typing that response on Facebook and start praying. Paul's response here is astounding. You see, even Luke, it's implied here, was begging Paul not to go. Guess why? Luke's going with him. I don't want to go, Paul. Can you blame him? It's easy for someone else to sacrifice, right? But when it includes us, it might be a different story in how we perceive it. But Paul's response is absolutely stunning. He asks why they are breaking his heart and crying for him. Paul tells them, listen, I'm determined not just to suffer, but to die for my faith. Now, does that mean that Paul just went everywhere looking for the martyr complex? No. Paul escaped many cities throughout his journeys. That's why the proper response isn't going, oh, just take me out now. I'll just stay here until I die. You go wherever God leads you. And if it eventually ends in death, so be it. This was already a fixed destination that God had for Paul. There was no turning back, even if others didn't understand him. When they see that there's no changing Paul's mind, they declare, as most of us will at times, right? The will of God be done. The will of the Lord be done. We've prayed those prayers, haven't we? If it be your will whatever it is that we're praying for. You see, this is still very much debated by many this day. What should be done when persecution is inevitable? And what I mean by persecution, it's a pursuit or mistreatment of someone in a hostile manner. That's what I mean by persecution. You see, the early church fathers and reformers had some different takes on this. But much of the consensus was as follows. This is really the practical part of the sermon this morning. When facing persecution, particularly when it comes to matters of faith, for instance, if you're not allowed to practice your faith in the local community, you're not allowed to gather with other believers, you're not able to operate, for example, our private Christian school, 
Under the paradigm of Scripture, violating someone's conscience, that's another way. You are to work through this process, and this is recommended by many in the early church and, our, and the reformers. Number one, when you're facing persecution, that hostility, if you will, you speak out against the abuse or mistreatment. Leadership and, and members speak out against the situation. They write letters. They're to ask for a meeting with authorities. The first step is not Facebook. The first step is writing a letter, praying for that leader, and seeing if God by chance gives them repentance in the horrible decision that they're making. The goal should not be to burn the bridge, but see if there's still a possible way to work things out. I can assure you of one thing, church. The first thing I will do when we face certain hardships as a church or even as a school will be to write a letter to those in charge or ask for a meeting with those in charge and graciously ask them to reconsider. My first response will not be a protest with a big sign in front of their building. Number two. And this is when it doesn't stop. And no matter what you've tried and attempted, nothing changes. Number two, flee or go away if the governing authorities do not listen. Flee or go away if the governing authorities do not listen. This is a step that many Christians wait too long before moving on to. So they either begin catering to the world, adjusting things as the government that actually is opposing their faith requires, or they wait for the full force to come down on them. Listen, church, I'm going to tell you without any reservation, there's nothing ungodly or foolish about moving somewhere else if you've done everything you can to stay put, and you've tried to work everything out with the authorities. In fact, it was down, this was done by Paul throughout his missionary journeys. He appealed consistently and frequently with those that are in authority. And when he knew there was nothing else that could be done, he moved on to the next city. In fact, lest you think it's ungodly to walk away and move somewhere else, it's stated by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, 16 through 23, this is what he says to his disciples in looking into the future. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should say, for it will be given to you in that hour that you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver a brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. 
and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For surely I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. You see, Jesus is foretelling the future, but the principle still remains. If you have the opportunity, flee to another city. You don't have to stand around and wait for everything to get shut down. It is not ungodly to want to raise your children in a safe environment, parents. It's ungodly to rely on yourself rather than relying on God and doing what he would recommend. If running away or moving, you should consider certain things, though. And these are the areas that I think many people do not consider and they ought to more seriously. If I decide to move due to persecution or a difficulty in raising my children for the Lord, and I feel that I am limited in somehow being able to disciple, will there be a church community that I can be a part of wherever I move? that will continually help me in my walk with Christ. Unfortunately, many Christians kind of get this all backwards. They start with the job opportunity and then they find the church. Why not both considered right away? Of course, some of us may have an industry that there are only certain areas that will hire us in certain states if we were to ever do that. But why the church becomes almost the secondary reason that we move is beyond me from Scripture. The job is not unimportant, but so many leave to go to another state by simply finding that job that works for them. And then they try to figure out the church afterwards with no regard for the church community that they'll be raising their children in. If you have children, will the school be as good or better than the one they're currently attending? Serious question to ask. So many parents don't take this into account. Your children's education should matter. If you're one of those parents that says, you know what, I'm thinking of homeschooling. Have you thought through all of it? Have you considered what that state may require? Some states are a lot more difficult to homeschool than others. These are just a few things to look at if, they're, if you're thinking of moving on based on the persecution you're facing. So what happens when we've moved from that original location that we face persecution, and for some reason, we've moved to a new location, and it's almost as if we're getting pursued? Well, the, th the final response is to defend yourself if pursued after relocation. At this point, if the authorities are continually pursuing you, you are called to defend yourself and your family. After you've exhausted the others first in appealing to those in authority and seeing no results, moving to some new location that would provide that safe haven that you would need to raise your family and to be a part of a local church. But if that continual pursuit is there, you are to defend your own. Your goal, believer, is not to try to overthrow the government. 
but rather to defend those that may seek harm to your family and to your church. Paul defended himself when he was given no other options. That's what actually happened in Philippi, if you remember when we were talking about that. Paul defended himself when they had no other options. For more on this topic, please check out the sermon on YouTube titled Persecution. It goes into more detail than what I did this morning. So in conclusion, church, as we see, Paul's committed. He's committed. My question for all of us is, how committed are you? How committed are you? You see, Paul was committed to the mission of God, and he knew that, hey, God called me to Jerusalem, I'm going to Jerusalem. Ultimately, Paul ends up in Rome where he's executed. He was committed to the church of God and met with disciples those same disciples that still pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem, they cared for Paul. You have to understand their heartbeat. Listen, church member, you may find others disagree with what God has called you to at times. Don't take it personally. Some of the things that God calls us to may seem strange to even other believers, but it doesn't negate God's call in our life. You'd be surprised some of the questions I get asked. Why are you a pastor? Why are you a principal of a Christian school? Why? I don't have to defend that to you. I know what God's called me to, and I'm going to do what he asks. And when it's my time to step away from a certain position, I will gladly hand it over. I have no intention to live my life for my own namesake. I have no kingdom to build here on this earth but his. How committed are you to raising your family as God has called you to, parents? Your calling as a father and mother is not to be ignored simply because you have other titles attached to your name. Those are not to be ignored at the expense of your career or ministry that God's called you to. Your children are your first and greatest calling as a follower of Christ. My question to some of you is, are you a spectator or a part of the community here at Sovereign Grace Church and Grace Academy if you attend? Is it easy to just attend and say you're a part, but you really don't do anything? You just come and sit? You just like hearing the sermons? Yeah, you're right, Pastor. I know I need to do that. I need to be more committed. You're right. Uh, what are you committing to? I don't know. I want you to be encouraged here in this church that if you're not a member of Sovereign Grace Church, I want you to commit to becoming a member of Sovereign Grace Church. If you've been attending for some time and you're not officially a member here, I want to ask that you take that next step and commit to being a member here. Now you may be asking, why? Why should I become a member here at Sovereign Grace Church? Well, there are a few things that Scripture lays out, and we'll, we'll deal with this in the next coming weeks. 
One of the greatest things is that if you're a member of a church, as God calls you to be a member of a church, that local church can help you be held accountable and you can help others become accountable. One of the saddest things I see in the churches in America today is a lot of people attend large churches with no accountability. To the point where people say membership is unbiblical and I ask, how do you exercise church discipline? It's really, really fascinating how far off scripture a lot of people have gotten. Everybody wants the goodies with no commitment, which is unfortunately the way we've seen culture for a long time. People want the benefits of marriage without being married. Same thing happens in the church. I want, to be the benefit, I want the benefit of being a member without being a member. That way I can just go whenever I want. I don't know if you know this church, but throughout church history, when a person left a community of believers and went to another community, that other community knew their reputation. That's why that letter of recommendation a lot of churches send out are important. Unfortunately, a faith that doesn't require much is not lived out well. Becoming a member shows that you're committed to the process of discipleship, that you believe in what God has described as the local church body. Listen, church, it's very difficult to help believers who are uncommitted themselves. Is that not true? How are you to help somebody that never shows up? It's very hard to, hard to have support in a local community you're never really a part of. God's designed the local church to be his body. And we all have a function in that body. Most of us are committed. The question is to what? We're all committed to something. Is it making ends meet? Whatever it takes, got to make the dough, right? Got to make enough money this year. The economy's going down the tubes. We need to do whatever we can on our end, right? Some are committed to getting to retirement. Listen, I just got a couple more years left. Let's just finish this off. I need to retire. Whatever it is, we're all committed to something. And not all those things are bad. My question to you, is that commitment something greater than Christ? Is that commitment something greater than Christ? As Chuck Swindoll once said in, in closing, more than once Jesus deliberately addressed certain issues that quickly diminished the number of onlookers. It was commitment that thinned the ranks.